Welcome to The Network, our attempt at creating a modern podcast version of the Negro Motorist Green Book. If you don't know anything about the Green Book, I invite you to Google it. With each interview, we are building a network of talented professionals that you can reach out and touch. Every episode is an invaluable resource for black people living in and traveling through America. Subscribe to The Network. You may need it. Tonight's guest is the principal of O'Keefe Middle School in Madison Metropolitan School District in Madison, Wisconsin. Tony Duga, my homeboy. Welcome, brother. Hello, everybody. Hello, Mike. It's so good to see you, man, and hear you. Um, it's been 20 years. Um, we went to middle school together. Um, you went to different high school. Uh, we went to Southern University together, and um, it's been that long, but um, always have been a great person, thoughtful, and um, someone who, as I'll talk a little bit later, is that you always had an opinion, um, and you had a critical consciousness as a young person. So it's really awesome to all this time later, here you are facilitating conversations on a podcast. So it's so good to see you. And, and hello, everybody. It's, it's, good to be, it's good to be here. Man, it is awesome. So you just made me think about something. I found a picture Somebody snapped a picture. Um, it must have been seventh or eighth grade. If I remember, I think the picture was taken in Mr. Calhoun's class. But oh. I was in seventh or eighth grade, man, and I had on a Malcolm X shirt. Come on, you had Mr. Calhoun, my good now that hey. man, Mr. Calhoun had the ring finger, the finger rings. He had a big Cadillac, and he just was this smooth brother that talks smooth. He's kind of like Muhammad Ali, you know, the, as a history teacher, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and he always he always told you, um, what did Mr. Calhoun say, you know? Something about the gutter. Like don't look 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 here, darling. Don't make me go to the gutter with you now. No, don't make me do, don't make me go to the gutter with you now. <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. my brother Vinny still does the can um can do that guy perfectly. Oh man, that's awesome. So listen, Tony, you I'm looking at your questionnaire and you say your childhood experiences shaped everything to you. And I know that these experiences have led you to where you are now. Man, so tell us what it was like growing up as a biracial kid in South Louisiana. And then just go from there. You know, for just, sure. Just take I, it I, for sure, for sure. Well, I think, you know, yeah. So I was I was actually born in Carlsbad, California. Um, Oceanside. My dad was a Marine. He was a Marine and there um in, in San Diego, he met my mom. Um, a Mexican woman. My mom's name is Rosa, and he's there. And the interesting thing about my dad, man, he is someone who is always willing to be different, right? And this idea of going off to the Marines, that's not a new story for anybody. But when you're living and doing things and you're just always willing to try something new, um, it sort of shapes everything that you do. And here it is. He's a dark, black-skinned man in California and falls in love with this Mexican woman. And um, they get married, they have me, and the next move in that story is actually moving to Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, and, you know, being born to Mexican mom, having a black father, being a, a biracial child in Louisiana is unique. Now, I could say that many people in Southern Louisiana are multiracial, as you know, right? There, there's mm -hmm. a strong Creole um, culture that means it's a mix of everybody. However, being raised in an interracial household is actually different. Um, being raised in a predominantly black culture is different. And it both has its challenges and benefits. 
And I feel like from an early age, I felt like I was always straddling between two worlds, not only from a racial sense, but from a cultural one as well. I didn't have the language to talk about it, but I lived it and it manifested into my personality as well as the unique perspective that I share with my siblings. So for me, you know, I think even at a very early age, I was able to sense discrimination and hate. Um, and it can really do something to you. Um, it looks, you know, the looks that you get, the whispers, that gaze, um, it is all coming at you um, um, just for being different. So when you're a baby, you know, when you're a child, um, um, you feel it, but the impact is limited because you're just not old enough. You haven't lived enough. And like with all sort of, sort of trauma like that, I'll call it trauma, it was benign. So you move on and you just don't know about it. But as, a as you get older, you know, you go through a range of emotions and even with your family's best intentions, the hurt and the confusion is not always properly supported. So as I grew older and understood the world a little better, I became more conscious and insecure. I felt, I felt it, man. I felt, I felt the words people would call my mom thing. Um, and, you know, definitely in the black community, that's what's interesting about my dad. My dad just kept on plowing through and um, just this amazing sense of pride and not worrying about sort of all that noise around him. And he just raised his family, but I could feel it, you know, um, and I felt the discrimination, as I said, from all sides. Prejudice and discrimination and racism, I feel, have to be examined separately, but we often clump it together. Uh -huh. It's this sort of deconstruction and reflection that gives to me, I think, the language to talk about it. And that just didn't happen to me until like, like way later. So, um, you know, as I got older, in fact, it, that started to change. I knew that was there, but I actually started to um, embrace like my differences um, and, and, and um, that came from my two cultures. And it's interesting because being raised in Lafayette, you know, Mike, you and I were raised in a place where um, oftentimes when I was a little older, I referred to Lafayette being a very diverse place, but it was, it's very polarized. It's very black. It's very white, right? And so sometimes, it, well, I don't know how much it is now, but it, it, that is it. And so it's also very traditional. Um, and so being in that, um, for me as a young person in Lafayette, just gave me sort of a sense of sort of fairness, unfairness. I was being treated, certainly in different ways and um but you know in the black community i was tony right um and, and Vinny is my brothers you know and we were right. there um but i also was i was acutely aware of all those other things that was happening to my mom from the white community who saw my mom as uh you know as she, she looks mexican but she's more of a spaniard so they saw her and they were definitely i mean we, we went through a lot of things when we moved from the little neighbor neighborhood of vise which is sort of central lafayette to the north side Mm -hmm. um, it was tough, man. I remember a lot of some, some really interesting stories that I could maybe talk about at another time. Okay. Okay. Good stuff, man. You know, I actually had no idea all this time that I've known you, you know, I just thought you was a light-skinned brother like me. That's, that's what everybody thinks, right? I mean, that's, that's so laughy. I mean, because people just think like I'm some another Creole dude. Now, again, no bash on the Creole, right? Because it's right. pretty amazing. Um, but a lot of people will often just think that I was just another light-skinned dude. And, yeah. I, and, and in some ways, I am. Because when you're raised in the Black culture, that's the identity that you soak up. And it, and it, um, it manifests itself in that way. I have, my wife is um, a white lady, right? And I have multiracial children. And my children are in this unique position. Um, and I can expand on that a little bit later. But raising multiracial child, children, um, is also a very unique thing. Um, anyway, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, listen, let's, let's dive in. Let's do a deep dive. 
tell us your why. What, what is your why? What are you passionate about? Weave your journey for us. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm gonna say this. My why truly is driven by deep-seated belief. And I'm, I'm coming mostly from my profession. I'm here as an educator um, that has been shaped by so many different lived experiences, but truly my why is driven by my belief that the K-12 educational experience is the life force of our community. And the critical aspect of that education is that the children we serve must feel valued, seen, and they must have a voice in that education. This is a sacred process that must be done with our children and families and not to them. I'm going to say that again, mm -hmm. with them and not to them. Um, they have to be active participants and move beyond sort of being passive recipients. Um, they need to understand what they're learning, why it's relevant, and they should have the skills so that they can choose whatever option it is they want to pursue. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think communities and schools need to define that with the community, like what are those values that we want to see um, in graduates, right? We need our students to be prepared to be socially conscious and mm -hmm. responsible for the world around them. Mm -hmm. um, also socially justice-minded. I think that's a factor that, again, if you're in environments where that's a common talk or language, um, that's there, but in some places that's not even on people's radars. And I think it's all, this all can look very differently, like, right? Intelligence, intellectualism, all these things sometimes come in sort of like this predetermined way of what smart sounds and feels and looks like. And mm -hmm. I tell you what, man, that really got me because I was, people now when I tell them that I'm, when people, when I tell people now that I was a silent kid and I was quiet, everybody cannot believe that because I'm so outspoken and, and, um, um, and social. But man, I was quiet because I was super insecure, right? I, I felt like I wasn't smart. I felt that Lafayette, you know, I was conscious of my Lafayette accent, yeah, you know, um, and, and that was real, you know, so like all of these elements of being and doing sometimes we have to know and give people the opportunity to realize like your brilliance looks very different from someone else's brilliance. And so too often we have, we have children believing that, that in, in their limiting. So um, I think being a partner with families and staff from an educational standpoint is important. That's why I think students um, really, really are at the center, the center of this. So for me, um, what we can create so that this evolution happens more often and breaks the mode, I feel like I want children to be the gatekeeper. I think too often we, we've scripted where we want our children to go. And um, for me, that happened to me, right? I think my own public education was a mix of um, mediocre and mediocrity and failure. I was, I was blessed to be part of a family that cared and loved me. I did all the right things, Mike. I said, yeah. yes, sir. No, ma'am. I never missed the class. I was a CB student. But interestingly, when I graduated from high school, um, you know, I only got into two schools. And it's interesting because my former professor, Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings, and still a good friend, I was in a class with her. And, um, you know, I was, I was sort of challenging the preparation that I'd gotten as, an, as a teacher at Southern University. And she challenged me. She says, look, Tony, don't criticize, you know, and compare it to any of these other institutions that are putting out these types of teachers. What Southern University gave you and what you owe is that Southern University gave you access, right? Southern University gave me access, man. And unfortunately, I think one of the challenges that's connected so much to my childhood is that when I got to Southern University, I mean, it was, it was 
it is the most amazing experience I will ever have. But when I got to Southern Man, it was magical. But one of the things that happened to me, unfortunately, is I was in Dr. Eva Bingham's class, fall of 1995, and I got my first paperback. And my, the grade on that paper was a 20F. I remember it like it was yesterday. I got a 20F on that, on that paper, man. And um, I think at that moment, I realized that um, like many other kids, I'd gotten to Southern, but I don't think I was truly, truly prepared. I don't think I had the skills. I, I, quite honestly, I think I maybe was reading and doing math. I think academically, I was like at a ninth or 10th grade level. But why had that happened to someone, um, you know, that had done so well as a child? Um, and, I, and I think for me, what I started to realize is, hold up, this will continue to happen, right? To a lot of kids. And that's why so many kids, one, weren't going off to college, two, not graduating from high school. And then three, if they got into college, they were experiencing what I was experiencing, you know? So I never looked back um, after that. Um, I never looked back after that. And so I started teaching in um, Baton Rouge after I graduated. And I taught at Prescott Middle on the north side, Plank Road. Um, and throughout that time, I was also working for um, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and the Boys and Girls Club, working in some really, um, um, some really needy communities. But I taught there. Um, I taught world history. I taught American history, Louisiana history. And um, it's interesting because I also met uh, my now wife. Um, who was also doing, was teaching there, but she was, this is an interesting part of the story. She was part of Teach for America. And Teach for America, as you know, at that time, and maybe still does, takes, you know, new Ivy League graduates um, or, you know, um, students from, from some of the larger colleges and sends them to some challenging neighborhoods. Now, there's a debate on the relevancy and the impact and the real scheme behind Teach for America. But what I had, what I experienced with those group, with that group, um, there was one person from Princeton, Princeton, um, someone else from Harvard. My wife, mm -hmm. you know, graduated from Northwestern, and um, man, I was so intrigued. And I, all these years, I thought it was that, hey, I'd never met anybody who went to Harvard or Princeton or Northwestern. Um, but what I, what it was for me is that the way they were approaching education, and the way they were framing things, Mike, I don't know, well, I don't know how it is for you, but in Lafayette. I had never interacted with liberal white folks. I, if you think about the people that we were raised with, most of them come from families who are pretty traditional and quite conservative. So for me, it wasn't that they were more intellectual than me or anything like that. It was just that they had a different political mindset mm -hmm. about how to approach the world. And that was on everything. That was on race, social justice, politics. And I was just like, whoa. So I was really connected to this group and learned a lot in, in that process. Um, met my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. We moved to Washington, D.C. We were to help one of the founding staff members of the Maya Angelou Charter School in Washington, D.C., um, and just did some amazing things. Taught there, worked with some amazing people, um, did that for a couple of years, and then my wife got into graduate school at Harvard, um, and we moved to Boston. And it was the same journey for me, man, just repositioning myself. Here I am, you know, country boy Tony, and my office uh, my office downtown Boston was right at the site. It was over the Children's Museum, right at the site of the Boston Tea Party, man. And every day I would walk from that office and I would pinch myself as I would cross the bridge literally and be like, what a, this, you know, I was, I, I feel like I'm Forrest Gump sometimes, all these different things. Man. And, and, you know, at the Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou was founded by James Foreman and David Domenici. James Foreman Jr. is the godson of Maya Angelou. So yeah, I, yeah. I spent quite a bit of time right there with Maya Angelou and having actual conversations with her. So, you know, it, it's just these moments for me that I, I 
Like, I feel like Forrest Gump. I'm like, you know, like, I'm not supposed to be here, but all at the same time, actually saying like, no, I am supposed to be here, right? Yes. We all are supposed to be here. And the question that I have to ask is, why aren't more of us here? Like, why aren't more of us here? And so in Boston, you know, I mean, so many different experiences, was leading a nonprofit there, became the executive director. And then from there, my wife happy, actually happens to be from Madison, Wisconsin. So I moved here um, and um, did graduate school at UW, um, the educational leadership program um, there. It was number one in the country at the time. And I didn't think I was going to get in, but I got in. So here I was doing graduate school, got married, um, and, you know, kids and here I am in my seventh year. I did. I was a principal at an elementary school, um, and then I'm in my seventh year at the at, um, Georgia O'Keeffe Middle School in the city of Madison. Um, and Madison is a very unique city. It has its challenges, right? I think everybody, every city has its challenges as, as it faces COVID, but also more importantly, um, I would say all the things that have come to light that have been a problem in this country for a long time when it comes to race. But Madison is unique in that it's a very, very liberal city. That, again, that has its own challenges, but folks are working really hard to dismantle racism. White people are openly working hard to dismantle racism. Black, everybody's working hard to dismantle racism. And you'll probably ask me this question next, but I think the most important thing is that the school district that I work in, it was led by Dr. Jen Cheatham, who was our superintendent, now has left and gone back to be a professor at Harvard. Um, and our current superintendent, Dr. Carlton Jenkins, the mission of our district is all about racial equity. So that's a really important thing to, you know, I'm shaped, you know, race and equity. Race shaped me so much as a kid. Education was such an important thing in my journey. And here I am all these years later, trying to get it right, trying to get it right. Yes, man, that, listen, that journey is, is something else. And it's great to hear what your school system in Madison is doing. I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to ask you Go a couple with of questions. Go with it. So, so often it, it can seem as if parents just send their kids to school, drop them off at school, and it's like, okay, teachers, principals, counselors, it's your turn. So you, you mentioned that you want to help students and families move from being passive pre- participants to being uh-huh. active participants. Uh-huh. How do you do that? How, how do we achieve that? How do we get families invested? How do we get them 10 toes yeah. down with their educational process? Yeah. Well, here's, here's something I'm going to start with here. You know, I believe that school districts and cities actually have to have a very clear vision in mission for addressing the needs of all children but especially its most struggling students. And unfortunately, Mike, most of our schools are failing our black and brown students. And it's not just like, oh, it's failing all the low-income black and brown students. If you look at the data, middle-class and you know, financially well-off black kids also disproportionately outperform by their white counterparts. For me, that's where it gets, it becomes a very personal internal struggle Here's the question, what am I, what is Michael, what is the average person here willing to sacrifice? How much, how much am I willing to change? Um, how much am I willing to give to ensure that everyone makes it, right? And the narrative in many people's minds is, I've worked so hard to get here. 
why am I going to give to those people over there who are struggling, right? So right. that is why I think that that's the narrative playing out in people's heads, right? And that happens in all of our heads. But that's why it's so important that districts and schools and the cities that support the districts need to make a commitment and explore what the data is telling us about the struggling population. And then I think we start to get somewhere. But we know that that can be politically, financially, and socially challenging. Mm -hmm. But I have to ask the question is, why not? Why shouldn't we go for broke for those people? Um, our district, you know, this idea of going for broke is our district's mantra. Um, as I said, under Dr. Cheatham, um, it is something that we have stuck with because we believe it is the right thing to do. Um, so like you said, society drops its kids at our doorsteps every single day. We're asked to make magic happen. Yet we are funded, Mike, on a level that feels like we're being set up to only survive rather than actually thrive. So unless you're in the school, in a community that has resources, right? There are a lot of community. I, I was talking to one of my, my family members who lives in a school district um, on the West Coast. Mike, their PTO's budget is 600000 If you're in a school in a community like that, right, those kids tend to come with more skills, more resources. The school itself has fewer behavioral needs, and there's a whole lot of support. And I want to be clear, I'm not bashing those schools. That's great. But why is that not the case for all kids, right? Yeah. So despite that, I think, I, think, I think despite the challenges that schools and staff face, we are working extremely hard. I want to give a big shout out to all of the teachers, all of the administrators, all of the school board members, and every person in the community, all staff that are really working hard because guess what? We keep going. We continue to be the light in our students' lives. And there are a lot of success stories. Sometimes we focus on the, right? We know that there are some not great stories. Um, but I guess what we must do is move beyond surface level change, Mike. We have to mm -hmm. move beyond slogans. We have to move beyond saying we believe in diversity of all kinds. If we're going to accelerate the learning for black and brown students, we need to create the systems, the structures, tools to help teachers and I want to go and really focus on teachers because that's where the greatest impact happens. You can have all these programs and all of these things, but if you don't have good instruction, mm -hmm. and that means a teacher who creates safety, I'm going back to our black kids and our brown kids. If, if teachers don't have the ability to create safety, create a sense of belonging and effective instruction, our students are going to fail. They're going to struggle. So here it is, Mike. When we were kids in Lafayette, I would say about 50% of the teachers look like us. I mean, you talked about Mr. Calhoun. We could go down the line of all those teachers in elementary and middle. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with politicians in Lafayette, right? A community of leader, a lot of black folks who look like us. Yes. The impact was long lasting. However, if we think about America, right? Collectively, 80% of teachers in America are white. But we can't just go out and hire more black teachers because the truth is it's a numbers, right? They're, they're not even out there. Right. So Rick Stiggins is a formative assessment guru, and my wife loves this guy, and he's all about formative assessment. One of the things he said is we have to love the ones we're with, right? That means we're going to have to support white staff members to become more culturally responsive mm -hmm. um, and not culturally proficient. And I, often there's a mistake, so a misunderstanding. When you're culturally proficient, that means, Mike, we've arrived, right? There's an end. When you're culturally responsive, there is no end. 
you are always working to improve in your perspective about who other people are. And many of the teachers out there, white teachers have all the best intentions. Many of them are actively doing things like teaching curriculum that reflect black and brown histories. However, it is not always about what you teach. And that's what you were saying, right? It's, it's about how you teach. So it's important that I think, uh, and, and I would say that I'm so grateful to work in the Madison metropolitan districts. And when I was in, in Boston, right? And when I was in, D, like, you actually have to make racial equity work a part of teacher development and experience. And it, it's important that school districts have racial equity be part of their experience. And I think if you want to even take it further, you even have to have cities embracing it, right? I think if we were to say in Lafayette, Louisiana, now no, just no judgment, right? I love my Lafayette. But if we were to say in the climate of Lafayette, hey, everybody, we're going to make racial equity and, and Black excellence a pillar of what we do. How that land, and not just in Lafayette, any place, right? The real question that we have to ask is, why is that not the standard? Why is that considered so radical and so far left? I think if all the data tells us that Black children are 10 times more likely to get suspended compared to their white peers, if only 15% of Black students are proficient in reading, if nationwide Black students graduated only like 69% compared to 86 to 90% of white peers, why isn't there a national movement, right? A mandate to address this. Why isn't there anything at the state level? Um, it is not that Black children are not capable. Right. They're very capable. And they have, like I said before, they have all the twos. But even with great intention, the way that white teachers talk to kids, the way they discipline them, the way they grade them, the vision they have from, unfortunately, is rooted in biases. It also happens for staff of color, like you were saying, because we too, and you asked this question, like, we too are conditioned and trained to function in a white-centered, male-dominant society, right? right. That to mm -hmm. me is why racial equity has to be baked into all of the work and not some offshoot of the school staff experience, but quite honestly, it has to be, it's, it's the responsibility of the cities, the counties, the parishes, the states to engage in the work. Yeah, and un unfortunately, you know, there are political hurdles, there are financial hurdles to making those things happen. And, and really in, in communities, you know, I think communities are just saying, hey, listen, you know, we we just want that opportunity as well. I think um, Congresswoman, I think it was AOC. I was reading an article a couple of days ago, um, and I think somebody asked her, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think somebody yeah, I, asked I, her. I, I, I'm going to openly say I really have a crush on that lady. <laughs> I can say that. This is public. This is, I'm going public with I have a crush. It's amazing. She is an amazing lady. Man, she, she is awesome. Somebody asked her, what does it look like to defund the police or, or something like that. It's not an exact quote. I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing there. And her answer was, it looks like the suburbs. You know, so when we think about what the suburbs look like in terms of access, mm -hmm. in terms of um, safety, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of things that are there, you know, in, in terms of streetlights and sidewalks. Yep, yeah, you're right on. Right, right, right. You know, so... Yeah. I think in education, that's that's what we're saying. You know, what it looks like here is what it should look like there. Because if Absolutely. kids have that same access, if kids are exposed to those same opportunities, magic happens. 
Yeah. And so here, here's the deal, Mike. Enjoying this episode so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Radio Public, or Pocket Casts. Now back to the show. There's a there's always this un, this this undercurrent of people like when you bring up the word reparations, it, like people cringe, right? Mm-hmm. If we know that the black experience, right? My grandfather, like if we we you've seen the images that that little cartoon of you know you've seen that little cartoon of the people looking over the fence, right? And that person at the you know um you know one person's box giving someone another box. Sometimes equality doesn't always feel um equal but the truth is are fair right the truth is if you have people that have struggled for so long if you're not going to give us financial reparation if that's not plausible right now which you don't think it is what about safety what about intellectual reparations right what about educational reparations if your american values aren't about making life good for everyone we have a problem here's a test right i said the word white continuously throughout this piece if you are white and are uncomfortable hearing me say that word, there's a good chance that you talked about in your last cast with um, with your last guest that, you know, people experiencing fragility. I think you talked about experiencing fragility from, um, you know, like male fragility, I remember. But the question is why, right? I think white folks need to grapple with that question in positions of power. It is that journey. And not just people of power, everyday folks, they need, it's that journey that can be the difference between, when it comes to the classroom, the successful black students in the classes, and are there are there failure, right? If that 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 psych that therapist that you talked to understood on some deep level that he needed to be honest with you, he needed to try to create a safe space. He had a, some type of relationship with you to tell you that. Mm-hmm. How how many people are teaching kids in a way that's so authentic? that it, it moves beyond just celebration of, yeah, we had Obama, right? But racial equity work is difficult. It's slow. It's uncomfortable. But Black people can't do the work for everybody else, especially when we've had such a tough time trying to not, to just be equal in this country, man. And right. so when that boils down to what happens in the classrooms, everybody has to be doing that work, right? I, man, I agree. You 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 said it, you said a mouthful, but you also said it perfectly. You also said it perfectly. There there is a lot of work to be done. It is difficult work. One of my episodes it, it's just a little mini episode, and all it is is a segment of you didn't ask. But one of the things that I talked about was I I, I talked to our our white allies. Yeah. And, and, and yo, so, can I hate to budget right there. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the books that I'm asking people to read. Um, you've worked, you bring up the word allies, and I think you're right. But Dr. Bettina Love, if you haven't read her stuff, Mike, you should, and everybody out there should read Dr. Bettina Love's work. It, it, her book is called We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the, the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Okay. Um, allies is a good stance to take. We need allies. But what she talks about is, Folks having co-conspirators, man, like, right, actually having co-conspirators. And that's something, that's a very active stance. 
he uses the um the 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 imagery of you remember the the young lady who climbed that pole it probably was in georgia and took that flag down african-american black lady uh -huh. she 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 practiced she went up that pole um and and took the flag down now what was interesting is there were a lot of people on the outside of the little fence like screaming and short and supporting her and saying like yeah like like this is the right thing to do and those in some way symbolically were the allies but what people don't know is that police were about to tase the pole to get her down they were going to tase the pole to, to, to get her down but this one white guy and it may have been the guy who helped her train her how to climb but tina love talks about in her book how that white guy moved from being an ally to an actual co-conspirator and he literally put his hand on the pole he literally put his hand on the pole while many people were on the outside of the fence cheering her on that guy took it a step further and he literally saved her life because those cops weren't going to tase a pole with a healthy white man standing attached to it wow that wow. that's the difference between an ally and a co-conspirator co again I've, I've just been so fortunate to learn from a lot of really cool people including dr patina love and just like all the people around me but that i think is some reframing that we we actually have to be um aggressive not let me not say aggressive but we have to like it's no, okay. i think yeah, i think yeah, aggressive yeah. may be a good word as a coach as a coach i, I think aggressive is a good term because yeah, what I, I, think, I think you're right. Aggress aggressive for the right things. Aggressive yes. for the right things. Because if I, we're passive, there will be no change. That's it. And I, and I think we have to reframe. Because what when I think about it from a coaching standpoint, what we're trying to do by being the aggressor is we're trying to shift what's going on right here. Right on. Right on. You know? Right so on. I, I think right that on. aggression, aggressive is a good word. Right. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I just, you know, again, I think that's it, right? When we use the word aggression, if we're black people using the word aggression, then people's fragility kick in. But right. like, we're not, like, I, I think we have to condition people to be like, hey, that's, don't be uncomfortable with that, right? We, we are having a conversation. If you're going to let one or two words deter or, or make you so afraid, then right, you got to work through that. So I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's okay to use that word. Yeah. Yeah. It's listen, this experience will change you. And that's one of the things that I say, listen, this, this thing is definitely going to change. you. Oh man. That, that, yeah. that's and, 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 and is there a time right now where the intersection between what's happening in schools and what's happening in society, a lot of people are using, you know, the word unrest. I'm not calling it an unrest. I'm calling it an awakening. What happened to George Floyd and all of these people that have been happening for years, right? People have no option but to do, but to change. And you're going to either, I think that was one of the things that made me frustrated when people were like, well, if I'm not saying anything publicly on social media and this, I'm being bashed for being silent. My question is, then what are you doing? Did you actually take a stance and do something to right. show, to publicly show that, to, sh to publicly show that you are appalled and you can't take it anymore with what happened to George Floyd? Like right now, like I think, I think we can't be silent anymore. And I think here's the deal, Mike, just like any movement, right? Um, whether it was the civil rights movement, whether it was the movement when you and I were in, in elementary school, kids with disabilities were in the Butler buildings. You remember the Butler buildings? That's right. They were, you know, they were in the Butler buildings. Inclusion is now here and that took a long time. And we think about um, the LGBTQ plus community and where we are with you know understanding, validating who people are. 
that's a movement. I think this is a movement that's long overdue. Like we cannot not do anything about it. And I think we have some amazing leaders across this country and across the world who are actually pushing that at when I think one of the most critical times. So to me, it's not an unrest. I think we're in the middle of an awakening and rightfully so. Yeah, so everybody was faced with a choice. Every person in America, and not just America, but around the world was faced with a choice. And some people chose to speak up. Some people chose to be silent. And then the other thing is every wave of change, every wave of cultural impact walks its way through our schools because every change happens with the young people. So those waves of change come through the classroom every year. So we have to be prepared. And you, you talked about teachers being prepared. Teachers have to be prepared. You know, growing up in Louisiana, basically it was black folks and white folks. I live here yeah. in Texas now, you know, so I've, I have um, taught a lot of Latino kids mm -hmm. and, and gotten to know them and, and gotten a little taste of, of the culture. Mm -hmm. And during the election in 2016, when I tell you that the fear in my classroom was real, Listen, I've, I've had a kid, one of my student athletes, her mom went home. They're from, mom is from Central America, okay? Mom went home, mom, this is like two years ago, Tony, mom still has not been able to get back in the country. Mm. You know, so, I mean, just, just real impacts. And one of the things that I had to do was get to know my Spanish-speaking kids, my Latino yeah. kids, my kids from, you know, Mexico and Central America and South America and the Spanish-speaking islands in the Caribbean. I had to really, you know, get to know them and, and embrace them. You talked yeah. about one thing. That yeah, I, I yeah. It, it, and, there, and, and you were put in the work because it wasn't out of like this pity, I need to be there. It was like, you understand that people struggle, right? Like they you need to be connected to that. And if, if people are showing you that they're afraid or not safe, then you do something about it. I think too many people have the privilege of just sitting back and like, I think what you're describing here is, that's not my issue, right? That's, that's those people over there. That's, that, that's those people over in Macomb and VZ, right? That's their okay. issue. I'm living over in, what do you call that place? You know, I'm living on the, what's the place on the south side of Lafayette? River, uh, River Ranch. River, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in River Ranch. Now, again, I'm going to say this. There's nothing wrong with people who live in those places. Nothing at all. They, nothing at all. That's where they live. But I also think I'm extremely upset about this um, conversation and the, the articles that I've seen about the closing of the, um, the rec centers in Lafayette. Yeah. Now, again, we have to understand we're in a tight budget. Leadership in every place has to do the right thing to make things go, right? There's some tough decisions to be made. But if you're going to look at data, right, I can talk to any person in Lafayette domain center, all these places, these few places that are closing, why are you going to close the numbers on the north and central side versus the ones that are opening and running and remaining open on the south side? Like, I think there's some real tough conversations. I don't know all the details, but it just seems like if, it, if, if there's an opportunity to say, hey, Lafayette, I truly care about you, right? And I'm using that example. It happens 10 times over in all sorts of places. 
But if you really want to take a stance and do what's right for the people that need it the most, then you do that. And that's where I feel like, again, I'm, I'm in a city that has had some challenges over the past two to three years with some major racial incidents. Um, yet people are really, really trying here in Madison, Wisconsin to, to, to stand up and change. And you talk about everybody, right? And people are very vocal about it. And, um, and people are reading and people are researching and people are being uncomfortable. But like with every community, there's still a lot of work to be done, Mike. There's just a lot of work to be done. Definitely, definitely. So let's let's shift gears a little bit, man. Great Go with conversation. It. We can keep going. We could uh, keep going forever, man. Man, listen, definitely. Talk about what keeps you up at night. What keeps me up at Mike at night, Mike, is I worry that 400 years of racism, oppression, suppression, and all the things that have held black and brown people back will take a long time to undo. And in the meantime, we spend. Sometimes I feel like we ourselves are black folks. And I am, you know, I want to avoid the single narrative. There's this lady, African writer, journalist, novelist, who talks about avoiding the single story. We are great men. We we have been here since the beginning of time as brown, brown and black folks doing amazing things, and we know that, right? Um, but I think in current history, we've experienced so many so many challenges. I think there are people who are struggling to survive. People are desperate, and for generations, we've we've not we've not we haven't we haven't been treated fairly, and I think we're struggling, and we're in a vicious cycle. And I wonder what I can do on a large scale level in education that can change that. Right, a few good teachers, principals, schools, and movements need to increase twentyfold, I believe, um, and that's still just scratching the surface. We cannot just continue to tinker. And again, I'm going to say this, we are more than a single story. We have an amazing legacy of greatness, contributions, triumphs, but we seem to be stuck in that single story in the eyes of so many people. And sometimes, unfortunately, in ourselves, it is the one thing that hurts me to the core when I would go back home to Lafayette and visit all the old neighborhoods, man, um, where I live in the 80s and 90s. You know, I think the American dream financially was still there for people. People could work for the city and make $40,000, $50,000 and live in that little house and keep it neat. Um, and kids still go to a decent school. But um, that's not the case. It's expensive. And, and people are struggling. And I hate to see it. And that keeps me up at night. I want to do something. Uh, and I think, you know, we all play our role. For me right now, it's education. And so figuring out what I can do to ensure that all my kids read at the level that my kids get a chance to experience the world and they have choices. I don't need every kid to go to Harvard. And I'm not just talking about black kids. I'm talking about all kids. I don't need every kid to go to Harvard that comes through my school. Yeah. What we do need to do is that we ensure that kids have the option and choices. We cannot dig, we cannot have what happened to me, right? When I walked across that stage, I had, I was, I did everything I needed to do. Right. I, but I had some I, I was pretty limited in my options. And that's not saying my teachers didn't care for me. That's not saying that my teachers didn't work hard. I'm just saying my reality, the combination of a lot of different things and so many other kids. And it continues to happen where kids um, are either not finishing high school um, and not giving themselves a chance to to, I think, reap the benefits of what also is America is amazing. Right. And it's amazing. But for a lot of people, it's not. And so we really have to give people and children the opportunity to access all of that. All right. So you mentioned one of the books 
um, that you recommend? What what other recommended books do you have for us? And oh man, I, I honestly, my, my my wife gets mad at me. I have seven books on the side of my bed, and I'm often reading two at a time. It's it's, it's kind of crazy because you know, man, I didn't read as a kid, man. I didn't read my first full like novel until I got to college. I'm not embarrassed to say it. You know, I mean, you got written a, you got assignments that were given to you, and like you know, a chapter of a of a text. But like full books, like the love for reading, the reading that I did as a kid, I would open up an encyclopedia, me and my brother, like these old Britannica, and we would just go through it and like explore the world through the books. But I just wasn't reading books. And now, man, I think for the past you know, 15 years, it's just been every book that I get, I gobble it up. So here's some books that I, I like to recommend. I'm going to go with that one again. We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching in the Pursuit of Educational Freedom by Bettina Love. The woman is brilliant. She's a hip hop professor out of Georgia and just gets it right. Someone else, um, Charlene, I think mentioned Stamped for the beginning. There's mm -hmm. Stamped and then there's Stamped from the beginning. Stamped is the sort of the young reader's version, but the it's called The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Kende. It is a very heavy book, but man, it is so relevant. And it just talks about, man, there were so many junctures in time where racism um, could have been totally destroyed but it was kept alive and it goes through that. I think another book that a lot of people are reading, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Um, and then a couple of others, I think um, Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman Jr. Um, is a really, really good book. And it looks at how, um, you know, the incarceration rates and um, local policing, the impact that it has on um, on, on brown people and, and the justice system. Um, I think another really cool one, and this one is driving a lot of the work. This is mostly for a lot of educators out there. Um, edu culturally Responsible Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. And she looks at, and this is really cool, she looks at the impact, like the physiological impact of culturally responsive spaces for children and how that impacts their well-being and their brain and ultimately their learning. Um, um, I'm going to say um, two more. Um, the Adventure Gap. Changing the Face of the Outdoors by James Edward Mills. Um, James Edward Mills is former National Geographic photographer. He's an adventurer. And this guy wrote this book. Hey, man, we're from Lafayette, Louisiana. Like, we're Louisiana is called what? Sportsman's Paradise? Sportsman's Paradise. It, yes, we, we are from that Louisiana. But in a lot of parts of the world, you don't see a lot of brown faces out there. And in this book, he talks about how black folks and brown folks, um, you know, have always been outdoors, but sort of recapturing that. And I'm going to give this shout out. This is um, a new book that actually dropped today. If you don't get it, Find Your Fire by Terry, our homegirl, Terry Broussard. Okay. Terry Broussard um, drops a book today. It's called Find Your Fire. And I'm super excited to read it um, and get it on Amazon. But Terry Broussard, Find Your Fire. She's just, she has this fire starter movement that gives some insight to what are people that are changing the world. How do they actually go about it? Okay. Okay. Definitely going to check that one out, man. That, that is a good list. And I, I have some, I I have some more for, for all the people out there. I have tons and tons of books and ones that I didn't mention here, but you know, that, and those are all heavy, but I also have a bunch of things that we also have to have fun, right? We have to explore the world through laughter and I have tons of books um, that I can always suggest. So contact me. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk about music. Oh, yeah. music. Tell us what you're listening to now. I know you are a music connoisseur. Hey, I, that's my thing, man. If you if you follow me, if people follow me on Facebook, like I'm music, like my life is one big score, I like to say. Um, I love R&B. I love Euro soul, neo soul, hip hop, jazz, fusion. 
I like like eighties pop. I like everything, man. My mom and dad had such a big influence on my on my like musical ears. Um, people like I love Robert Glasper. I'm listening to a lot right now. Katrinata, Thundercat, Flock of the Beat Child. I'm Outcast is always on mix. Um, Gold Link out of D.C. Incognito. Um, and 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 my um and Mesa Lee. Um, Jay Rawls, Little Brother, Ninth Wonder, Foreign Exchange. Um, some of the Euro soul that I listen to. Boom Clap Warriors. Um, and then finally, I always have Jill Scott. I always have Jill Scott on rotation. Always. Oh, man, Jill Scott, man. Got yeah. You know, I guess close to that, too, is I always have the roots. The roots The roots are always on rotation. Okay. Okay. Man, that's a resting piece for Malik B. Oh, man. Malik B. You know, it's interesting, Mike. Early on in my, like, you know, listening to music, you were one of the people that, you know, tribe dropped an album or you know anything hip-hop early hip-hop you were right there on the floor like you were one of the people that i would go to um in lafayette you know my brother Vinny was always on music you were on music there was just you know damien duga there was this little group of us that just were always listening to obscure things and everybody be like um yeah those dudes are kind of weird you know but you, you i mean you were a little cooler than i was but like on the music tip like you know I don't know about that, bro. But I, I, I have tried to have a diverse palette and, and yeah, yeah, continually sure. to grow. For sure. All right. So let's talk about podcasts. What what are you what are you listening to on podcasts? If you um there are two podcasts that um that that I'm gonna suggest. Um it's actually one lady whose family I think went to Grambling. She's based out of here, Madison. Her name is Angela Russell, and she has a podcast called Black Oxygen, right? I mean, if there's a place Madison is a unique place because it is working really hard to dismantle and disrupt racial inequity, but sometimes it just comes down to numbers, right? Black folks in Madison don't make up a large percentage of the population, and so you just need that connection. And Angela Russell um, is is a, um, a diversity officer and just like this super smart lady who is working to create diversity, celebrate it, um, and her, her podcast is called Black Oxygen. The second podcast is, um, this one's really, really cool, man. Um, it's a guy by the name of Keith Masco and his wife, Roxanne, based out of Boston. And the interesting thing about Keith Masco is that he, the name of the podcast is called Living a Triggered Life Podcast. And basically what it does is it explores, um, and for the context is that uh, he as a kid experienced abuse. And that abuse lives with him. He's an amazing actor. And I think that's what he taps into as he's gone through his journey to be great. But we all are living with things that trigger us. Mm -hmm. And too often we keep those things buried, right? And for him and his wife, his wife also experienced trauma. So two things. One, what are the mechanisms or the ways of dealing with that trauma? What are the triggers to look for? And then how do you actually deal with that um, openly with a partner who also has that? You know, you don't even have to have trauma but we all have those triggers and this podcast is cool they're just they're just normal people speaking to the masses uh, you know in good everyday just i don't know just just language that people can understand it's not sort of heady or too intellectual very smart but it's very accessible so living a triggered life podcast okay good man that's good that that is good stuff it's All really right. good. It's really good. So this is this is the point of the podcast where we we you know we kind of change lanes a little bit right here. So we're gonna do something called rapid fire. 
Go with it. Ask you five random questions. Uh-oh. And you just come off the dome with your answers. I'm going. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one. What was the last gift you gave? Oh, my goodness. The last gift that I gave. Um, the last gift that I gave was to one of my staff members um, who was leaving my school. Um, she's a big, um, she's into young, um, what do you call it, crocheting and, and, and knitting. And uh -huh. so I gave her a book, um, um, a book and a couple of little other items because she's going away. She was an amazing, her name is Jamie Domini and she's just essential to my growth in this district and the school and um, she, she's leaving our school. So that was the last gift. Okay, okay, good. All right, question number two. If you had a spirit animal, what would it be? Oh man, it has to be the rooster, man. I'm a, look, I'm a rooster, bro. The red rooster. Hey, listen, so, <laughs> man, I'm glad you said that because I'll never forget. <laughs> we were in, we were at Moss and used to, used to say, used to talk about chickens. Chickens. Nice. These little chicken signs. Man, that, that was the funniest thing. That is one of my earliest memories of you. Man, so oh I'm so glad you, you said that. You know, when people, it's funny because people in my sort of life now don't know that. And when I tell them, they kind of just stare at me with like a mouth open. They don't understand like my whole life with chickens. Like that's a Lafayette thing. They don't, they don't know. Yeah, that's a Lafayette thing. They don't know anything about that. All right, man, I'm so glad you said that. All right. Question number three. If you could paint anything, what would it be? As in a picture of something, or I could paint something. Just paint something, just whatever. If um, you could paint anything. You know what, man? I, I would learn how to, I would love to learn how to paint a car. Ah, oh, that's a good answer. A car. Okay. I'm actually, I'm actually, these last couple of, um, months I've been trying to think about, should I get myself like an old Impala or a 6.4 or something, like actually take that project on and fix it up, man. I, I think I want to, Get something on hydraulics. Man, crazy. listen. How cool, how cool would that be for a principal to pull up on in a, in a 6.4 on hydraulics? That would be listen, awesome, right? With your playlist, I could see you pulling up with the drop top. And some bass. Oh, man. Come man. on. They don't know. They don't know. All right, here we go. Question number four. What celebrity annoys you the most? Ooh. I have to be honest, like, I'm annoyed by the Kardashians, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate that. If, sorry, Kardashians, if you ever listen. I, I'm annoyed by the Kardashians. <laughs> the whole crew of them. Man, it's all good. It's all good. Listen, if they hear this, we made it, brother. We made it. <laughs> See, the funny thing is I know some people that have found a way to get it to them. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, y'all cool and all, but not just, I can't. All right. All right. All right, man, here we go. Question number five. How long does it take you to get ready in the morning? Oh, not now. Um, um, 10 minutes, man. I can, I, I'm, I'm really quick with that because, you know, I, I'm really quick with it. And I, even in that, you know, Mike, all these years, I still iron my clothes, man. But I'm, I'm pretty quick in the morning, 10, 10 to 15 minutes. Okay, okay, good stuff, man. That was rapid fire. Thank you for participating. All right, here we go. The last segment. It's called You Didn't Ask. You Didn't Ask. This segment is where you have the opportunity to give someone advice, 
that they did not ask for. So what unsolicited advice would you like to share for you didn't ask? Hey man, you know, you asked me what my why was earlier and I think throughout this whole conversation, you know, a lot of it comes from, I love education. I, I love being in schools. And I think as an educator, to me, this message really is for my young listeners and everybody. Travel, travel, travel. Get away from home, your city, your state, the country, any way you can, if possible. Learn a second language. Imagine being a black guy speaking Japanese, right? right. I think people need to travel and experience other things. It, it literally changed my life. And if it wasn't for the travel, I would not be where I am today. And again, I, don't, I didn't have much, but the, the hunger to get away changed me. Also, um, there are so many opportunities that allow and support youth of color in the journey of going abroad. Find a way to travel and work your network. I think we are, unfortunately, we're not always taught well of how to be friends with people beyond our circle. Open up your mind and explore other people and other ways of being. And then finally, this is for all the people that have a hard time with fragility, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I repeat, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Hey, you didn't ask, but there it is. <laughs> Tony Duga, my brother, man, thank you so much. Welcome to the network. Hey, Michael Prejean and audience, it has been a pleasure. It is so good to have this conversation with you, and I am honored. Thank you. Listen, great conversation. I can't believe it had been 20 years since I had talked to Tony, what a great interview. I enjoyed every second of it. 20 years, man, way too long. But make sure you go check out the show notes. You can find Tony's recommended book list, his recommended music, his recommended podcast. You won't be disappointed. Also, make sure you check us out on Instagram and Facebook, the underscore network underscore podcast on Instagram, the network with Michael Prejean on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter. Now, I need all of you to go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating. I definitely appreciate it. I'm going to thank you in advance. Or simply like it, share it, retweet it, tell a friend about it. Every kind gesture is moving us in the right direction. So be sure to tune in next week, same time, same place, episode 13. I'm bringing in Dion Dorsett, the president of the Houston Area Urban League Young Professionals. Until next time, this is Michael Prejean signing out. Peace and blessings.